My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. Just a heads up before we get this episode started, we did have some audio issues when we were recording this session, so please bear with the audio quality for this episode. I did try to fix up as much of it as I could in post. Regardless, I thought it was a really fun conversation, so I hope you enjoy. So welcome, Sam. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about and how you got started in uh, tabletop role-playing games? As they heard, my name is Sam. Uh, I've been involved in DVD for, I want to say somewhere around five years now. I've only been DMing for the last two. I actually got started way back in the dark ages of 2007. Uh, I was in college in Kentucky. Most of my friends were back home in Tennessee. And the friends that I had, there wasn't a whole lot of common interest other than our majors. Uh, it was a, I was a culinary arts major, so that's where a lot of my friends were. And one night, some of my friends, they asked me, hey, we're going to go meet up with some friends of ours for some D&D. Why don't you come along? I heard of it. I had a basic understanding of what it was, but didn't really know anything beyond that. So we went to the apartment of one of the people who invited me. He had a program on his computer. I want to say he wrote himself. It was just a dice roller app specifically for character creation. They made me character on the spot, and then we went to the second apartment where the session was actually being held. I didn't do very much, but it was my very first time out. So to me, it seems a little more understandable. But looking back, I do wish that I had actually participated more than I had. But then I had to pull out of college because I was needed back home. And I was left with a handwritten character sheet that I couldn't really do anything with. Years later, I've moved in with my girlfriend and now wife. We've moved to a new city. I'm working at the local Walmart, like I have been for years now. And we actually started a second group where I was finally able to play for a full campaign. And that's what really cemented my passion for D&D into me. It also gave me a bit of a bias for druids, but I think something like that happens to everybody. Right, you always have to kind of love the first character that you played for that class. The first class in the first full campaign, yes, I absolutely loved my deeply druid memnos. The very first character I created back in 2007 in the 3.5 days was, a, I want to say, a gray elf wizard. But that wasn't one of my favorite experiences because uh, I don't know if you ever played 3.5 and my memory's a little bit fuzzy at this point. But I seem to remember there was somehow a physical beauty score somewhere. And that was one of the things that we rolled, you know, homebrew or not. My physical beauty rating wound up being an eight. And the only reason it was an eight was because my character was an elf. So even by elf standards, he was uh, he was fugly. Let's just call it what it is. For comparison, one of the other players, he was playing the human ranger. His physical beauty rating was 22. <laughs> and to this day, I, I still can't wrap my head around how he managed to pull that off. Because they were still, I want to say, third-level characters by the time I showed up. So how he managed to get that kind of a score. I, I, I wonder if he cheated some days, but this was years ago, so I guess it doesn't really matter about shame or work. Yeah, I, uh, 
I didn't play 3.5. That's kind of the edition that was around when I was trying to get into it. Um, but I've only ever played a, a 5e campaign and then a handful of other systems. Um, so is is 5e what you run now then? Yes, that was the first full campaign I played as a player. That's what I run as a DM with my players. And have you played other systems at all? I've had interest uh, before getting involved in the group of my Walmart co-workers. I would spend a lot of time at local McDonald's just piddling around on the internet on my laptop. I looked up a bunch of RPGs one day on Wikipedia and actually made a list of some that I wanted to try. But there was only a handful of people in my hometown that were even interested in hearing me out. But then the next problem becomes actually meeting up with people <laughs> and schedules don't always work out. So it never really got any further than that to the playing stage until, you know, years later, just a few years prior to now that I was finally able to get involved with my coworkers. Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of the situation for me too, is I come from a pretty small town in Minnesota and there's just not a, you know, a ton of interest necessarily. Uh, so it's always kind of, once you finally find somebody else that's interested in playing it, so you kind of latch on to them. My original hometown is not technically a small town, but it's one of those that it has sort of kind of the mentality of a small town in certain aspects. Where I live now very much is a small town, and the people who have lived here longer than we have seem perfectly happy to keep it that way. So you said you just started DMing not just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, it's been about two years total. So what, what's been your experience switching from being a player to actually running a game? Well, for one thing, the DM in my coworker group, I did not give him nearly as much credit as he deserved in hindsight. I knew DMing wasn't going to be easy, but I wasn't expecting the pressure that actually came with it, especially for the very first session, uh, just before I started talking, getting the session started. I can feel that sort of lump in your throat that forms when you're super, super nervous, but it's something you have to do or else you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, that was uh, very similar to my first experience. It's, it's kind of like you can, you can read all of the rules and have the book memorized. And then as soon as you sit down at the table, like half of that goes out the window, you know, and you're just kind of scrambling to <laughs> remember basic things. Yeah, I, I had no shame in admitting i know what i'm doing guys but there's a very real chance i'm gonna have to pull the book out at some point i'm not stupid just bear with me here so what helped you get through that first session then basically once i started talking and realizing i made it into way bigger of a deal than it actually was that actually that actually helped me calm down some and we were able to get through that session with very few hiccups I still get a little bit of the lump even now, just before we're talking. But with the experience I've picked up now, it's not as bad. And I'm able to move more smoothly into getting the session rolling. One thing that I've kind of learned is that I always seem to be worried about like radio silence or just like, you know, locking up and you're, you're thinking and you don't want your players to necessarily be like waiting on you. Um, but if you kind of take a step back and be like, you know what, they're they're here, you know, if it takes me a couple minutes to just kind of like figure out how everything's gonna, you know, work out from this role or, you know, scene transition or whatever, you know, 
they're there. They're going to wait. They're not, they're not like, hurry up and get to the next thing, usually. So, very thankful that my players are so understanding. I do pause occasionally, but I also know I'm one of those people that usually if I'm talking, especially make a point, my hands get involved. So, as long as my hands are moving, they know I'm still there. I'm still in the moment. We'll get to where we're going. I just need to figure out how to word it first. Sure. Yep. Yep. And just taking a moment to pause and think is usually helps me out a lot. So, and you're, so you said the campaign that you run is, um, is 5e. Has that been like a pretty long campaign or is it, how do you, do you do, maybe just talk about your campaign a little bit and kind of how you structure it? You're actually technically on our second campaign. The uh, first campaign we did, the scheduling was a holdover from my first group uh, and the first group. All but one of us worked at our local Walmart, so we were able to sync up our schedules in a way that we were playing, unfortunately, only once a month, twice if we were lucky. So in the beginning, those early sessions in that first group were like seven hours long, which we had to cut a little short when things started going wrong towards the end, you know, players picking at each other, things like that. <laughs> and that. And then once I started with my players' first campaign, one thing, you know, first campaign, same schedule. And on top of that, I was opening up with four players total, four very quickly turned into seven. And to be for a first time PM, that was that's a lot. That was a little, uh, yeah, I was, especially the very first campaign. And then the pandemic happened, so we had to take, unfortunately, a very long hiatus. And then a few months ago, and we wanted to get back into it. And I consulted my players on Facebook Messenger saying, basically, you know, look, I understand it's been a while since we played. I want us to get together again. But at the same time, I also feel it's been long enough. It may just be easier for us to scrap the original campaign and start fresh. And I wanted their input on it. They were completely understanding and they agreed with me. The only request that they made was that it stay in the same world that I had built for the original campaign. And I was perfectly fine with that. So with the current campaign, it's 10 years in the future. The group that they, that their characters were supposed to be with in the original campaign hasn't been reintroduced if it's going to be. Their original characters have just, they're in the wind. Nobody knows what happened to them. Uh, there's a bit more advanced in the technological level of this world now. It's kind of steampunk crystals, for lack of a better okay. description. Like, uh, for example, excuse me. For example, in the campaign, this campaign started, they were at uh, the hometown for two of the player characters boarding a dwarven cruise ship that turns out is an airship powered by magically imbued crystals, which they also use crystals like this for a communications array, like a radio Morse code. Oh, sure. And, it's, and once I revealed that it was actually an airship, because I drew this out, making it a bigger reveal hinting at it with like straight straps in their cabins by the beds just so you don't fall off the bed and i mentioned that the ship is now lifting off the water dinner plate eyes that my players had made it totally worth drawing it out and building that tension to that one moment and that was just the first session it sounds like a pretty good hook because i'm just grinning over here listening to you know just the summary of that scene that would be a, a pretty awesome event as a well, the city itself the city itself doesn't have the crystal technology that's the boring kingdom in this particular game world uh, i got the inspiration from that spur of the moment 
Pocket Alive from uh, a book that I've read by the author Jim Butcher. It's his Cinder Spire series. They use their ships in the exact same way. And I even incorporated some more uh, weapons they use. They have firearms in these books, but instead of traditional, you know, bullet firing firearms, they're powered by crystals as well. And they little bolts of magical energy that will burn and seriously hurt people. I simply took that concept so far and basically made it bigger into the form of guns on the side of a second airship that was attacking the one they were on. That, that is a really cool concept. Um, I have a kind of an airship-themed one um, based on a different book series called The Edge Chronicles that I read, I don't know how long ago, um, powered by Floating Rocks. Good book series, though. Um, I'm going to have to check out your other book series because that sounds like a fantastic campaign setting. <laughs> it's just one series by Jim Butcher. He's probably more well-known for his primary series of the Dresden Files. Uh, oh, basically, yeah. it's a. I love those books. I haven't drawn any inspiration from those books yet. Do you find yourself um, pulling a lot of inspiration from just books in general or other media as well? A lot of what has happened and what I've put in there it actually hasn't really come from outside sources to form inspiration. It's I take what little notes I usually have and then build on it as we go. A lot of improv happens, not just in role play, but even just setting the scene. But somehow that turned into my DM style, and I haven't had any complaints yet, so I can only assume that I'm doing something right. So how much, uh, how much prep and stuff? Is it pretty light on prep for you then? better about my prep in the beginning i talked with the uh dm for my first group he explained to me that by the time our campaign was starting to wrap up his prep was absolute minimal just plan maybe two campaigns tops and make up the rest as you went me i try to have a little more prep done i'll plan combats out i have the uh cardboard battle map tiles i'll figure out where i want the combat to happen and uh, what tile configuration to use, depending on what the battlefield looks like. My actual notes, bare minimum, it's going to be a bullet point list. I'll split it into two categories. The primary objectives, the ones I absolutely want to get done first. And the secondary objectives, the things that I definitely want to get done, but it's not as crucial to be done ASAP. It doesn't always work out that way, even for the primaries, but it still gives me a guideline to go by. So could you, it's really interesting, I haven't heard of anybody kind of organizing it as like specific goals before. So could you give like an example of like a primary and a secondary goal that you would have? Oh, sure, I can do that, no problem. Uh, for the primary example, uh, this same campaign, the reason I had them on the Dorbin airship, which is actually a luxury vessel, was because it was being attacked by the second ship, which forced them to land back in their own town. So for the last section that we just did, one of the primary objectives, the ruling government, which is technically occupying, because the land's been at war for about 10 years now, the occupying government, which covers about half the continent, they sent in a detachment of soldiers and sailors to help with reconstruction on their hometown, which was attacked by their own government's airships in the same first session. They haven't uncovered why yet, but hopefully they'll get to that. The primary those people in place and have the leader of that 
group of soldiers informed players, you know, this the capital city of this region has also been attacked. You two have seen the attackers. You need to get there and see if there's anything, any kind of connection. Uh, secondary objective would probably be something like a, a random encounter. Like our past session, that's how I had my notes organized. The random encounter I wanted to throw in, I had it in the secondary objectives list with details so I would know what I was talking about, what was supposed to happen. It didn't work out in my favor, but I managed to get to that secondary objective. That's kind of an interesting way to organize your notes because you you really have like, you know, I want to do these things and, and then here's some other things that can kind of happen. And then as your players are kind of reacting or acting in the world, then you can say, okay, well, which one of these really makes sense to be the next, you know, item in that we hit? That is a really interesting idea. Are you still, uh, is your group still se uh, seven players, you said? Up to seven players maximum. Almost every single one of them was new at the time that we started. Uh, by the time we started the second campaign, we backed down to four, all from the previous group. One had to duck out because of work, so we left us with three, which were actually the original three that got me to become the DM in the first place. But then uh, one of them, I believe, he still lives with his parents. His dad found out that it wasn't an online game. Once he found that out, he was not able to come back. We haven't heard from him recently. He's trying to stay in touch, but... We've all tried contacting him, but no one's managed to get a response just yet. So now I'm actually down to two of the original three. We're going to be on our third session with just those two starting on the fourth. And so when you're running um, when you're running those games, then it's, I, I assume, every you, in order to have the session, you, everybody's got to be there, basically. That's reached the point, especially with just two players other than myself, if one of them has to duck out, then that, that's pretty much it. Especially since these two also currently live together. Uh, I haven't yeah. talked to them about doing a one-on-one -on -one session yet, but I imagine it, it might not just seem the same, and I don't want either one of them to miss out unless it's absolutely necessary. So at least in the meantime, for the foreseeable future, so long as it's just me and two players, if I can't get both of them, I probably wouldn't have either of them for that session date. Sure. I've done a one-on-one -on -one session and and that can be tricky. And I found that if you have at least two people, you know, cause then they can bounce their ideas kind of back and forth between them versus like, even if you have like an NPC that's helping them, but you're like, I, you know, the NPC maybe knows some stuff, but like, I can't tell you, you know, everything. Cause I know what's going to happen. It can be kind of weird to do. I, I haven't figured out a good way to do one-on-ones yet. Do you have any tips for maybe new DMs? I quite on Reddit, especially in the RDD subreddit. One thing I say a lot, it's two things. You know, they might be new. You're going to try and plan for everything. Don't. It's not going to work. If you can plan for everything, it's not going to be any fun for anyone. Not even the DM. But more importantly, the number one thing I say is basically... Basically, that, you know, you're the one who's writing the story, but it's your players that are making it happen. Try not to get too upset if they don't go exactly the way you want them to. I mean, it's your story, but it's their adventure. They have to be able to enjoy it. 
And if they're enjoying it, that gives you a chance to enjoy it too. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So kind of on that note, do you tend to run more of like a sandbox game or or do you tend to, you kind of mentioned with your prep that you kind of have certain goals that you want to do. How do you kind of balance that out? Actually trying to get them to explore the world. We did more exploration in our original campaign. Whereas this one, I don't know if you call it a sandbox or not. They've stayed in their hometown for now, but that's only because they're just not getting to a position where I could tell them, hey, you need to go here in the confines of the story. But now they've actually provided the perfect reason for me to tell them to go to X location in our very next session. It's all because they decided to do something I never could have predicted in a million years. So, you know, do with that what you will. Players definitely have a way of, you, I feel like you think you can think of, of everything. You're like, okay, I, there's this encounter and like, here's the three ways they can solve it. And they'll, they'll pick a fourth option somehow. Yeah, it should be worse than that with a combat just a couple of sessions ago. And I'm still mad about it, but at the same time. So what happened is in this game world, in the original campaign, I had the player characters discover a homebrew mechanic in the form of a crystalline mineral that I call a mage stone. Basically, it can amplify the power of a spell. So, for combat purposes, let's say you were casting well, any damage dealing spell for that matter. Say you casted a second level spell slot. If you use a mage stone potion, which it can be refined into, you would add an additional damage die without having to upgrade to the next level spell slot. I didn't get around to introducing the other varieties of Maystone, but they did manage to find out some of the side effects. Uh, basically, if you're in contact with this unrefined stuff for too long, it starts to cause madness effects. So I had them rolling on the madness table. Uh, one of the players, he kept rolling poorly when it happened to him. He ate a lot of dirt in that session. <laughs> so, of course, everybody was laughing at him. In the zoo campaign, the way they break the combat was they made it back to the hometown. They're in the tavern because, of course, they are. And they're sitting at a table, chilling, minding their business. And two of these guards that were employed by the occupying government come in. Uh, what's important about this government is that it's, I forget the term that it's used in the player's handbook for it, but basically, wizards are running the show for this government. They place a very high value on magical ability, but obviously not everyone's going to have it. Those that are willing to show initiative that they're going to do whatever the magic users in charge say, they'll hook them up with magically imbued weapons and armor that have been crafted with the mage stone. So it gives them a few decent spells to use. These may see as well. I hope you're using enemies using the Acolyte stat block, I think. I changed where it shouldn't be too bad, or so I thought. I was going to keep it simple, and according to D&D Beyond's combat tracker, or not combat tracker, uh, was it encounter maker, whatever it's called, just these two players against these two enemies was ranked as a deadly encounter. That wasn't the goal, but at the same time, during our session zero, I found out they'd been playing amongst themselves in the meantime. So they had a better grip on what they should be doing to play and that sort of thing. 
I have the guards go up to the bar. They're intimidating the bar owner. These guys don't like that. They try to pay him five gold because he's trying to shake the bar owner down. And he knocks the coins on the floor. They didn't like this so much so that before I had a chance to react, one of them took his character's hand axed, buried it in the chest of one guard, and the other one used his double-bladed scimitar, double-edged scimitar, and basically decapitated the other guard almost completely in one shot. Because they were attacks, I had them roll. Both of them critted with <laughs> max damage on, in one shot. They ruined my encounter before we even had a chance to get initiative because I was so shocked at what they were doing. I, these, are, these are lawful evil characters, but there's only so much you can expect, even from an evil character. Man, that is sort of the, they were about as shocked as you were. <laughs> they were impressed. I, was, I had a hard time finding words while it was happening. <laughs> a lot of what the hell was going on on my end. I was just trying to figure out what was going on. Where did I go wrong? I even did a TikTok video about it, explaining what happened. And I just kept repeating, this was supposed to be a deadly encounter. This was supposed to be a deadly encounter. <laughs> just just not for your guys, right? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> so are your players, like, wanted now? Surprisingly, no. I mean, in hindsight, it probably should have. But they were technically helping someone. But also, uh, I said they were lawful evil characters. In the backstories, they're brothers, for one thing. But also, in the town they live in, their family is a successful shipping company. But they're also basically the mob. So they probably have a lot of the town guard. In I don't know. It sounds like there could be some complications later down the line for your players because of that. <laughs> Well, if their town hadn't been attacked by the fleet airship, you'd probably be right. But that threw all kinds of disarray into the situation. Um, you mentioned uh, D&D Beyond. Is that where you track a lot of your stuff and do character sheets? Or do you do some of it uh, actual printed? My, player, my players actually turned me on to D&D, D&D Beyond. They were starting to use it in the original campaign. I was perfectly fine with the character sheet app, Dungeon Master app that I have, as well as, you know, on one other, like I would use originally Microsoft Word from my notes, but then I had to go to Google Docs. But then I decided, you know, they're using it, just about everybody in the party is using it, so I figured, check it out. I've just got the free vanilla account, you know, only have six characters, things like that. Yeah. But it's actually helped out with a lot of organizing, keeping track of what their characters can do. I'm not having to go back and forth between character sheets in each session, but at the same time, I've still got all the information I need. If I'm giving them inspiration, I can just one click of the mouse and I can do it myself. Uh, so I have, I've, I've used it briefly as a player. Um, I've not used it as a, as a dungeon master. So you, you obviously get some extra kind of tools that you can see their characters and everything then. Well, as far as I can tell, the tools that it has, even for the basic account, are available to everyone. It's just if you're not playing as a DM, obviously, you're not going to have much use for the combat tracker or the encounter builder tools. Whereas just about everybody could have use for the character sheet part of it. If it's just a basic account, you only get six character sheets. But still, that's a lot to work with, even if all you're doing is building NPCs. 
Yeah, so do you keep like NPCs and stuff on there, or do you kind of take notes of them separately? I haven't started using that for NPCs yet. Uh, truthfully, most of the NPCs that they have actually interacted with are usually made up on the spot depending on what it is they're trying to do. Ones that in particular that I actually planned ahead for, they were in a stat block because they were there primarily for narrative pur- purposes, like the commander of the military unit that's helping rebuild their character's hometown, for instance. Sure. Yeah, and that makes sense because, yeah, honestly, NPCs can be, it can be a quick chat and then they're gone. So, you know, it's wasted prep if you, you know, statted them out unnecessarily. I've always just kind of, you know, maybe have a couple, like, people or some kind of basic descriptions of maybe who they are. But un- until you really need to break out, like, a stat block for, like, combat or something, then it easier to just not fuss with it until until that time when you actually need to to have some numbers. Yeah, until I need to start building set blocks for NPCs, I usually make them stand out more by, you know, temperament, what they do, their race. I made a couple of uh, drunk shop voters on the spot, and both of them usually wound up passing out on the floor before the conversation was actually over. And it's all for the sake of entertaining my players. Because that's another part of my DM style. If you were to sit in on a session, whether you participate or not, you notice there's a lot of jumping up. And almost every single time, it's because of me. That's just the kind of person I am. Could you talk a little bit about your DM style then, or kind of what you think it is? Or, or maybe the other parts of your DM style? I've never described it before, but I, I could try. For one thing, you know, I mentioned... There's a lot of laughing. That's usually how we start. Because one thing I do right as we're going over the recap from the previous session, without fail, I always say previously on Dragon Ball Z. That's a holdover from my my original group's campaign. That was something we did. stuck. As far as I know, I'm the only one still doing it, but I haven't really heard much from the rest of them as far as, you know, their other campaign groups are going. Um, you know, that's how we opened it up you know, previously on Dragon Ball Z. Then we get the details out of the way from the recap. We make sure we know where we stop so we know where to pick up. And then once we get into it, you know, it's more or less straight descriptive narration. And then bounce it over to the players. They'll actually you know, talk with each other, not just in character, but they'll even role-play physically some things like this past session. They both, their characters had to work together to throw something a good several feet in front of them. They literally were doing the motions, sitting next to each other, one holding one side of it, the other one holding the other side, and actually moving as though they were actually doing it. Which, as impressive as that is, it's also really amusing that they were that into character. They both got inspiration just for that. And then usually it doesn't take long for someone, again, usually me, to crack a joke just because that's how I do. Keeps someone entertained, keeps them invested in the campaign. And then they get to joking themselves. It hasn't gotten out of control yet, thankfully. <laughs> but we've also, we've also been playing together long enough in just a short amount of time that we have. We know when to cut up. We know when to get down to business and then get back to cutting up. And I think that's a big part of why how I run the game works as well as it does. Right. You've got that kind of trust and and just like intuition between your players 
to know when when to be silly, when not to. Uh, the kind of physical comedy of that role play scene, I think, would just be really fun as a DM to watch, <laughs> or anybody really. Oh, oh, it was, it was. I made a TikTok about that too. I'd say what they were doing specifically, but TikTok it was basically you know them role playing, giving inspiration, then it cuts to me acting like totally entranced in what they're doing because they're invested is going to be in that situation really was they're usually fairly good when they're in character but adding the physical elements to it you know i actually forgot very briefly oh yeah they're doing this not just because of me they're doing this for me at least i can do it reward them with some inspiration right so do you you and your players uh when you're role-playing do you do voices or anything for your characters you hear the kind of voice I have. That's not going to happen. But let's just face that. But uh, for most male characters, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It depends. The most notable voice I can remember doing was in our first campaign. It was no wizard. That, for some reason, to me, I decided he needed to sound like Mort Goldman from the show Family Guy. <laughs> uh, it sounded like a good idea. Nobody said anything, so I can only assume they agreed. That's one of the things that I've struggled with is is doing voices because it's it's a little bit outside of my comfort zone, um, and I'm not I'm not generally super animated as a person, so it's it's definitely weird for me, and it's kind of weird for people who know me to see me doing that. So that's definitely been a struggle uh, for me. So a lot of times it's more just trying to narrate how a person may be acting or or feeling or kind of the physical things that they're doing, but a little less on the voice side of things. How they're reacting, a lot of that is based on cues from what the players are doing. They've relied a lot on intimidation, especially in the last session. So I react accordingly. It makes them laugh, but at the same you know, it definitely drives home. You're being incredibly intimidating. This person is very clearly scared of you. How are we handling this? What is something about uh, DMing that you wish that you had kind of found out sooner? I knew that when I started DMing, I wanted to just do Homebrew right at the start because I always felt that with the module, you more or less have a blueprint for what is supposed to happen. And I saw that as too confining. I learned the hard way. I really should have started with the module because then I know more or less what I should have been able to do within the uh, scope of the module. I haven't read any, but I would have had, like I said, a blueprint ready to go. So I had a basic idea of what needed to happen or what I could expect instead of having to you know, literally make up everything from scratch, build from the ground up. I've gotten better about it, but there are times I still think, you know, maybe we should have started with the module first instead of just going for homebrew right out of the gate. So do you try to homebrew like a lot of the game, like classes for the players and stuff, or is it more so just kind of the, the setting? It's more the setting than anything else. Uh, the whole world basically is completely homebrew. I'm not yet confident enough in my gaming abilities to homebrew an entire classes or races or anything like that. I've homebrewed a few uh, magic items on D&D &D Beyond, 
but that's the most I've extended that to outside the scope of the game itself. Sure. So it's really just kind of the setting and, and like we talked about the different, you know, airships and firearms and stuff where you're just kind of tweaking some basic items that you could probably pull from kind of existing things. How do you approach homebrewing? Like I said, the same world as the first campaign was. For that, I literally wrote a two and a half page description of that world, giving first a general overview of the continent itself, and then going into each of the uh, seven regions, kingdoms, whatever you want to call them, in detail, giving you a little information here or there about the races that occupy them, what kind of things you can find, how one isn't even a an actual region at all. It's basically a mobile prison colony. So that, at least for the second campaign, the world building is pretty much already done. It's getting into specifics where a lot of it is done usually within the week of the session. And if we're continuing from the same location, that makes it a little more easier. It's just getting into, say, a specific layout for a specific building. A lot of that, I don't prep as much to that as I would like. But so far, playing it off the cuff has worked out. But I am going to try and do a little bit better and try to get at least more specifics for the layout of the buildings as we go. And it sounded like you guys are playing in person. I know you mentioned, um, like, for combat and stuff, you break out tiles. Do you do layouts or maps or anything or, you know, anything on the table for kind of normal play? Or do you do that more theater of the mind? We try to use miniatures when we can. Uh, they still have some from the first campaign. They haven't brought them over yet, but the first combat that we tried to do, they kind of wrecked for initiative, as I said earlier. The tiles are more so we have a clear battle map of what the battlefield is supposed to look like. As far as other maps go, like for a dungeon, I started out using a big notebook of graph paper. Like that was my mapping. I've started using some online resources now. I haven't had to use them as thoroughly as I could. But mostly more of a timing issue. Yeah, I know there's a ton of just digital maps out there, and they work great when you're doing it online, like through Roll Twenty or something. But then to you know get them printed off can be a little bit trickier. You mentioned the tiles. Do you know off the top of your head what the specific tiles are? Uh, I forget what exactly Wizards of the Coast called them. I've got two sets. One is an urban set. So you flip it over on one side, you get city streets, even some building interiors. Flip it over the other side, you get more of a sewer-like layout. And the other set is more wilderness, mostly woods and a subterranean theme in there as well in that same package. But I haven't had to break that one out in a little while, so I'm not 100% on that last part. But they were from Wizards of the Coast, at least. Yes, they are. Um, did you grab those like online or do you have a local game shop or something? I ordered those through Amazon. Uh, like we discussed earlier, I live in a small town right now. They're, the closest game shop to me was about an hour away in my hometown of Lebanon. But that, as it turns out, actually shut down within the last few months. And I didn't find out about it until it was already a done deal. The only other one that's quote-unquote close to me is a couple hours away in the city of Laverne. Have you had a negative experience DMing 
you know, that maybe taught you something about DMing? There's actually two negative experiences. One I was actually involved with. The other is actually what led to me being a DM in the first place. Uh, the one I was actually involved with, one of the players that I have, the one who had to dip out because of work, in the previous campaign, we were about to start a session one day. It was actually one of the last sessions that we did for that campaign. And literally five minutes before we got started, he was asking me if it'd be okay for him to have a sort of animal companion. Not officially. He was playing a ranger. I want to say he was a blood hunter. But I was okay with it. But more than five minutes notice would have been nice. It became a little negative because I wasn't expecting it. I didn't have a way to plan for it. So the way I worked it in, the city they were in, he found it at a uh, market stall that was on the surface selling weapons and armor. But this was one of the the badger that he wanted, which happened to be uh, gold and black, like Hufflepuff's crest or whatever the colors are. It was uh, basically animal trafficking. So that's how they found the badger where they did. They were able to use gold to purchase it, to rescue it, and then he wanted to take the time during downtime to tame it. And I told him, you know, okay, you can do this, but you're going to do it with a slight disadvantage, which he wasn't totally on board with because it should have worked out just fine. And I had to keep explaining that, you know, yeah, you're right, that's what it says, but at the same time, you didn't find this badger in the wild. You found it in a cage with traffickers. It's not going to trust humans, right. humanoids, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And it took, it took basically the rest of the group agreeing with me, explaining the same thing to him. Yes, we understand this, but you know, Badger was in a cage, X, Y, Z. So better part of 45 minutes was spent trying to convince him, yes, it sucks, but this is more than likely how it would be realistically. This is how it's going to be now. He finally quieted down. That was the end of it, thankfully. Yeah, it's still a, a lot of time taken up to, to kind of d- resolve that problem. Unfortunately so. If it was something involving the gameplay itself, like people were genuinely confused about, say, how a spell or ability was supposed to work, I can sort of understand that. But over the nuance of a situation like this that no one was prepared, prepared for in the first place, it definitely made me wish we could have gotten some of that time back. Have you run into anything like that since then? Thankfully, no. Uh, the players that are still coming, they haven't said anything about wanting anything on that level. I would like to think that if they decide they want something like that, they'll give me at least a day so that I'll actually have time to plan. Sure, and you haven't necessarily had players contest kind of a ruling or a role in that same way? Not, not, not in a negative way, no. The closest we had to that was just the usual... They tried to do something, it went through, then we realized, oh, wait, this shouldn't have been able to happen because nobody caught it. I can't really give them flag for something, but as DM, I should have caught myself. So we just, you know, let it go, make a note for next time, and we move on with the game. And is that kind of how you typically handle Like, if there's rules or something that you miss or aren't sure, do you kind of make up a ruling and say, okay, well, we'll take a look at this, you know, between sessions and see how it's supposed to be handled, or do you kind of stop and yep. clarify it? That, that's how I try to follow the, you know, make a ruling on the spot in that situation and then research it later. 
the group I was with before I became a DM. The games were fun, don't get me wrong, and I'm all for educating myself, but having to stop the session to look something up, you know, it breaks the immersion, it brings the game to a halt, and overall it's it's something I tried not to bring to my own groups. And so far, we've succeeded in that, and I'd like to keep it that way. Yeah, I, I found that that uh, piece of advice seems to work well for both RPGs and sometimes um, sometimes board games, you know, that have maybe weird, you know, like corner cases where it's like, you know, this is, really isn't talked about in depth in the book or they kind of miss it, you know, and it could be interpreted two ways. Usually it's like, well, we'll just, we're going to play it this way. And then if it comes up again today, we'll handle it the same way. But then we'll go and we'll look online and see if they put out anything that's like, oh, yeah, in this case, this is how you should actually handle it. And then, you know, we can take that going forward. Yeah, that's how I would imagine most people prefer it be handled. But unfortunately, not everybody, you know, DMs or players, is going to handle it the same way. As long as it doesn't lead to an actual conflict, you know, deal with it as necessary in the moment and then actually take care of it when the time comes. Sam, it's been really good chatting with you today. I actually had a really good time with this. I have no problem doing this again if it ever comes to it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.